Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Um, we're excited today to have uh, Dr. Eschi with us. Dr. Eschi is um, in the urology department at New York Medical College, and he was one of the leaders in developing uh, um, or in working with uh, percutaneous surgery for large kidney stones. He teaches a course for the AUA um, on ultrasound for residents generally, and today he's going to try and modify that course um, to work over a Zoom conference. So we're, we're excited to have him here with us. Um, Dr. SG, I was wondering if uh, you could perhaps tell the residents something about um, how your career uh, progressed over the years and, and any tips that you might have for them. Uh, you want me to do that at the beginning or towards the end? Uh, if we, we could, are uh, usually starting off with that, just about five minutes. Sure, <clears throat> pretty much. You know, I, uh, I have one slide. <clears throat> um, first of all, good morning and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, actually, it's not that bad to get up and then sit in front of the computer to give a talk rather than, but it, it's a challenge because you're used to an audience and the, the kind of material I'm going to talk about is more like an interactive stuff. I did my best to make it kind of Zoom-friendly, if I can use that expression. Uh, yes, I, <clears throat> I did my training uh, in New Jersey in surgery, and I did all of my urology training at Long Island Jewish uh, with Arthur Smith, and I did pediatrics with Monia Hanna. And so I just basically was in the early, early days of the urology, and we practiced on every possible thing. And unfortunately, those situations don't come around. But the one thing that I wanted you to take out of that opening is what I also have at the very end, if I get to it, is that a lot of times certain things come your way, opportunities come your way, but luck is never enough. You should work at it. If there's a good thing on your way, somebody likes to help you, somebody wants to do something with you, gives you an opportunity, you got to work at it. Just luck alone doesn't take you anywhere. At some point in your career, you have to prove yourself and do it. And that, that usually comes with struggling. And then, yes, we have gone through doing things that were, were taboo to what is now standard. And one of the things that I wanted to bring out, look at new opportunities. When I trained, the word ultrasound meant nothing. In the radiology department, there were probably one or two machines and the radiologists were trying to incorporate sonography into their practice. Now, if you do not have ultrasound in an office, it is literally impossible to practice. You know, it's an essential part, and that's why as a resident, you should make every effort to learn this technology and make, uh, make you know, use of it at the right time. It changes the life of your practice, and also it changes the way you interact with patients. I think it's quite important. And if uh, that's, reasonably good. I would like to proceed now. And I, I, I decided to use this as an opening slide, but hell when it's, it's a, it's a, is a, is an Austrian, German, Irish, and now half American, half Irish artist who created this painting. And when you look at the empty streets and empty restaurants, it's called the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, but it was also based with a spoof of an original uh, artist who had done something called the Nighthawks. 
And the reason for that was that, you know, the other day when I walked into our, you know, grand rounds, you know, and it just, I see this, it kind of reminded me of that. But like everything else, you know, New York people are tough and they get going. And sure enough, you guys did your strike and you created this awesome series. And I would like to congratulate you and thank you for letting me be part of this. And I'm going to try to dominantly show you how the good image is obtained, how to be comfortable getting an image and how to use it. But of course, reading a, the slide is easy. When you have a beautiful artisan in front of you, everybody can see what's hydronephrosis, what's a big mass. So I'm not putting a lot of emphasis on that, but mostly what we're talking about is the, the machine, the acquisition and all that. So I always start my talks with this. And if you look at what's going on today and you think you walk into a room with a patient, they look at a scene like that, they will never ever let you touch them. So the first thing you know, you have to clean the probes, put them away, and people are very sensitive about looking at dirty instruments in a room. And I don't have to tell you, it's literally insanity nowadays if somebody walks in and sees things like this in your room. And I, a patient, you know, I walked into a room to a procedure years ago and then somebody before me, these are all actual pictures. I didn't make them up. I've taken these pictures in my office over the years. And the patient looked at me and said, you're going to put that on me? So clean these probes, put them away before you clean your patients. You won't forget to clean the patients. You always have to do that. So the most important part, the patient needs to be comfortable. So, and you know what that means. Close the door, make it nice and quiet. You don't want to have the door open, people yelling in and out, coming, going out. And you know, you try to use the gel uh, warm if possible. It's not always like that. Use the basic principles of radiology. Image gently, image wisely, you know, Alara, don't use, the probe generates heat, so don't keep it on the skin for a long time. Don't push too hard. These are the things. But you got to become good at it. And it's just based on the old New York expression of getting to Carnegie Hall. How do you get good at something? You got to probe and probe and probe. You just do it repeatedly till you become good. And then just reaching for that probe and looking at somebody's bladder, scrotum, or kidney, it just like becomes an extension of what you do. It's not that hard. You need to gain the confidence. So you have to position yourself comfortably. If you're reaching out over a table or your leg is to the right, your hand is to the left, you know, you can't acquire good image. You have to be steady, comfortable, the same way the patient needs to be. And that's how you can actually get a better sense of what you're doing. The most important thing probably that commonly we use in sonography is frequency. It's a lot of things. We're not going to talk about that. And the frequency of these probes go anywhere from 2 to 22, depending on what you do. And the resolution of your image primarily depends on the kind of probe you use and the frequency that you use. And uh, you go from static versus real-time ultrasound to create a variety of images. So, this is a simple slide and it's very meaningful. If you look at the left side, you can see typically probes that are like one to six megahertz, you know, but these changes a lot with the machines and the different companies, they get better and better. Usually they are curved and they're wide. So low hertz, low megahertz for deep organs. So when you get to the higher megahertz regions, like, you know, four to 12 is the kind of stuff you use for like transrectal ultrasound, et cetera. And then, the higher frequency 
is for shallow organs. Scrotum is a good example, and also pediatric probes are also high resolution because kids are small, they have very little fat in there. So the abdominal probes have all sorts of shapes and, and they all come all sides of uh, megahertz. Uh, these are typically what you call a sort of like scrotal ultrasound or penile ultrasound probes. You know, they're usually flat, but they can have other figuration. They use it sometimes very variationally for like A-line, jugular axis, et cetera. And they are usually high frequency. So what are the ultrasound modes? We just keep saying ultrasound, ultrasound. Actually, there are several modes of ultrasound. And I always find out not too many people know what these things mean. So A mode. And A mode is actually is like an amplitude. An A mode ultrasound is what you use for therapeutic. When you put that probe on the stone and you're breaking up the stone, you're using an ultrasound. It's an A mode ultrasound. You're using electrical energy and transferring it into uh, ultrasound. And that is somewhere around 22 to 24 kilohertz in terms of the GB mode, which is what you all use ordinarily, and B stands for brightness. It's a linear uh, array of you know, sound waves that the transducer emits, and it receives the images back and produces a picture. And M mode, and very rarely somebody gives me the right answer, that's your echo. When you send somebody to get an echo, you're using M for motion, which is uh, the Basically, we call it echography. And finally, uh, Doppler mode, and Doppler mode is based on the work that uh, Doppler did. Um, uh, and we will get into that a little bit later on. So the most common thing that you usually look at is the grayscale image. So what it does, it gives you echogenicity, the shape of the parenchyma, the collecting system, and you can get the measurement. You can look at a variety of things in there. So let's talk a little bit about Doppler. He was the, the Viennese you know, physicist, and uh, he really developed and learned about the Doppler effect because he was studying the stars and movement of the stars. And uh, as uh, the word effect is used, is what you really need to know are simple. So it's the, uh, if you can see in red, it says, a Doppler effect is the apparent shift in frequency. That means when something comes close to you or something moves away from you, the frequency changes. And that's based on that change, you can, you can allow this change or this frequency change allows measurement of the velocity of a moving object. And that's all it is. The moving object here is the flow of blood in the vessels and the corpuscles, the red cell corpuscles and interaction. So he's, uh, and even Google, um, uh, pay tribute to him by creating this uh, doodle for him some years ago. Um, a good example of a Doppler effect is a police siren going by, uh, an ambulance, uh, ice cream man. So uh, what happens here is that, as you can see, the frequency goes up when an image or an object nears you, and the frequency goes down as it moves away, as you can see here. So it's louder here, it's less loud here. That's, that's all it is. So what are the forms of Doppler? You have bedside of Doppler, you know, that you put it on an artery, you look at somebody's ankle, wrist to see if there's any flow. The duplex ultrasound allows to get an image, but at the same time, you can get a picture of the blood vessels. The color Doppler adds color to what it has a duplex. And then when you add spectral wave, you create what we call a triplex 
or color duplex plus six extra power Doppler is when you don't have enough flow. You want something more sensitive. You go to power Doppler, which is five to seven times more sensitive, but it is less specific. And some of the newer machines, like in eFlow, I think they call it, they have power Doppler with direction. Typically power Doppler does not have erection, doesn't differentiate between the artery and vein. So this is an example of the color Doppler imaging. You can see the kidney in the background and you can see the vasculature on it. So we can differentiate between the vessel and the artery and you can see the calluses, the usual stuff that you know. And now this is what we call the triplex or the spectral uh, images. So all you have is your regular ultrasound, you have your Doppler, and now here you also have this spectral wave, peak systolic and diastolic. And you need those two to calculate your resistive index. And a good resistive index typically is 0.7 for most vessels. So when do you go to a power Doppler? When you have a low flow state. And for urologists, what is that? That is testicular torsion, or when you have vascular thrombosis, like renal vein thrombosis and et cetera. So that's the indication for using power Doppler. So this is a part that I'm just putting a little bit out of the sequence, and that is called like a SUS or a contrast enhanced ultrasound. Unfortunately, it is not used a lot in the United States. Get people in your institutional radiology to use it. You inject uh, about 5, 10 cc's of uh, gas bubbles. These are like, um, you inject them into the vein and you, what you do is that then you image the kidney. So what happens is that the interaction of the sound with these gas bubbles enhances the echogenicity of the blood and it's to the factor of 500 to 1000. So you actually are creating a vascular picture of the kidney. And this is amazingly beautiful image when you cannot use contrast or whatever images you need to get like CT or MRI are not adequate. So i just show you one example here. You know, for example, we have an image in here, you have a kidney which is questionable, and this part of the kidney has a mass, and we tried CT, we tried MR, everything was not working out, she couldn't stay in the MR. But here you can see in the contrast enhanced, unfortunately I can get the video to run because it takes a lot of clips, but you can see that this lesion immediately lightens up. So this is a vascular lesion. It's an easy thing to do, but you need to find somebody who's interested in doing it. As you can see, it gets brighter and brighter, and it eventually washes away. And now we are even doing, started doing this in the bladder to do cystogram. And it's easily, you can actually see it. If somebody has obvious reflux, you can see them back in the kidney. Here's another example that a lesion that was in here, a, and we did like, you know, this is again, another one, which is the elastography, again, future, this lesion here, and with this, and then as you could see in the later views that the video didn't run, unfortunately, you can see that this lesion brightens up. So you don't need to worry about the renal function. Okay, so what are the equipments we need? You need, you know, this is typically what you use for abdominal and bladder. It is usually larger, they are curved, a variety of shape, and they're anywhere from two, three to seven megahertz, depending on the, your company. And what it does, it, uh, what are the indications? So we put that probe to look at a kidney. What? We're looking for mass. You're looking for hydronephrosis, blah, blah, blah. Again, as I said earlier, I'm not going to tell you what are the indications. You know all of that because you do it, you order it, you look for it. 
in your daily practice. We're gonna talk mostly about the imaging. So the indications of doing ultrasound is all of these, you know, monitoring these cysts, follow-up, Doppler, on and on and on. And there's also intraoperative ultrasound that you use for doing percutaneous approach. Sometimes intraoperatively use it, you know, to want to do a partial nephrectomy. You put it inside to find the boundaries of the lesion, again, out of our range. So this is where I want to spend a little time, and it's just called image acquisition. The most important part is to get quality images. And quality image is what shows you the relevant information that anybody can look at and say, yeah, that's what it is, not just what you can see or decide. So what are the three rules of acquisition? I call it LOM, your location. That means you have to locate the organ from the best angle of insonation. You have to look anterior, posteriorly, laterally, and your orientation. Where is this organ? Is it what is to the left of it? What is to the right of it? You know, you change your orientations, get sagittal or transverse view. And finally, motion. You don't do a jump up, jump off and on on the kidney. It's a continuous, soft motion of the probe. You do fanning, moving, like skiing, painting, rocking. It's all in your wrist. It's sort of like a legato, as they say in music. It's like a slow, soft continuation. It's not off, on, off, on. That's the most important part of creating that slow, soft motion on the body to get good images. So you're looking at this image. For years and years, we have looked at images like this. You look at the kidney, yes, lower pole, upper pole, mid pole. But when we look at this image of ultrasound, and if I ask you what pole it is, unlike this, I hope you all said lower pole. <clears throat> and if you think it's a little bit confusing, it really is not. When you're doing an ultrasound, this is the patient's foot and that's the patient. But when you're looking and doing it yourself, look at it. The patient's head is to your left, the patient's foot is to the right. So by tradition and definition, as you can see down here, the upper pole is seen on the bottom, which is to the left side of the screen. So that is something <clears throat> in the beginning, which is a little bit different from conventional IVP type of images. The measurements of the kidneys are known to you. I've used this model over the years, many times, you know, or when I do like teaching and all, and it's uh, helpful to show the orientation. <clears throat> I actually had this, uh, I used to distribute this during the courses, you know, it's just like a reference for you to know what are the sizes of what, what is the range, and if you're interested, I can have them scanned or sent to you somewhere if they want to reproduce it for you. Now, <clears throat> please note, when you are looking at a kidney, it's not a one direction approach. The kidney has three rotations compared to straight spine. First, you get about 15 degrees of angulation in here. So you should take it in mind when you're taking images because you have to know that angle. Because if you're looking at this part of the kidney, you're gonna miss this part. Or you're, you're focusing on this part, you're gonna miss that part. The second rotation of the kidney is about, I don't know, they say somewhere around 10 to 15 degrees, which is anteroposterior rotation. And that's probably because of the pushing of the psoas muscle on the kidney. And the third rotation of the kidney is about 30 degrees of posterior medial rotation. 
So you have to take all of that in, in mind when you're taking an image of the kidney. The kidney is not coming to you. You have to take the probe to the kidney to get that perfect image. So, so if you can uh, look at these images, for example, here, if you're looking at this kidney here, and this is your probe, and you're looking at this kidney, if you get it perfectly lined up with here, you're gonna get an image like that, a beautiful sagittal image. And if you look around and look this way, you're gonna get a cross section of the kidney. And that comes by the rotation of the probe. You will never see the whole kidney when you're doing a cross section because you have to move up and down or angle the probe to see the upper, middle, and lower pole of the kidney. Whereas if in a sagittal view, if you stay in the mid plane, you, a lot of time you get a good view of the whole kidney. So now, for example, if you look at this picture, what is it missing here? We are missing the upper pole. And that's for the same reason, because you're looking at an angle and you didn't pay attention to the section that kidney has a tilt. So you are looking at the lower part, but the upper part of the kidney is either more anterior or more posterior. So you have to move the probe slowly to get the whole view. So here, when you're looking at cross section of the kidney, for example, in here, look at this. You see the shadow that probe throws on there, that is the image that you will be getting. And that's the only way you can get to look at the different sections of the kidney. That's why in the typical ultrasound reports, you have an image of the upper pole, mid pole, and lower pole. And that's why the movement of the probe that you're able to create that image. So how do we get images? The most important thing is a patient positioning. So for the right kidney, you have the patient in the supine position and you get your image at the mid clavicular line. Sometimes you have to do left posterior oblique. Sometimes you have to do left lateral decubitus. You have to move further back. Very rarely you need to go into prone position. Most of the times you're able to get the images between a little bit of a rotation going to the side. And always, almost always, we start the images, you know, with the probe in that kind of, uh, the orientation of the probe, again, that depends on your machine and you will have to know which side is up, which side is down. Now, when you are imaging the kidney on the left side, notice that we don't start in the, we start here. We start in the left axillary line. It can also go sometimes to the cubitus, and very rarely we can go to imaging uh, in a prone position. So when you are looking at a kidney in this direction, this is the kind of image you're going to get. And that's what we looked at earlier. And now if you rotate that and look at the kidney in this direction, you're gonna get a cross section. So this is like a perfect picture at the level of the hilum, the horseshoe appearance. Can see the vessels going in and out. So <clears throat> sagittal view, the probe typically sits like that. It looks kind of like this on a patient and this is the kind of image you're going to get. This is not a very good image. It's a perfect image. It should be at mid-plane at the level of the hilum. You should see that and you should be able to see the whole kidney. But that's as an example, I just put it in there. So now I want you to pay attention to two things. I want you to pay attention to this probe in my hand and the image on the screen, not here. So when I do this live, you can see that I turn my probe counterclockwise and 90 degrees and you can see that my image goes from 
a sagittal view to a transverse. That's as simple as that. And then by fanning it up and down, you'll be able to get. So if you're working on the right side, again, turn your probe counterclockwise 90 degrees, you get an image like that on the right. And if you're working on the left side, by turning it, uh, you get a transverse that would look like a, a perfect transverse image at the hilum looks like a horseshoe. <clears throat> the impedance or the, it simply means resistance, the, the denseness of the tissue. I don't want to go through all of this, but this is the, the, the two in red is what's important for you to know. The kidney and the liver, similarly kidney and spleen have about the same density, more or less. So what does that mean? That means that the, the density of the tissue is very similar. So when you look at the right, see, this and that are very close to each other. And even look at down here, look towards the upper pole, when you see you're a little bit off angle, when these things overlap, you can sometimes actually, it's hard to differentiate the kidney from the liver. Same thing on the left side, the density or the echogenicity of the kidney and the spleen are very close. So those are perfect landmarks for you to find your kidney or find the correct orientation. I'm gonna to come to that later on. But so if these two are so close, why is it that we see the kidney so separate from the liver? It's very simple. You have that, what I call the wall of fat. Fat is very bright and echogenic and it creates that that parameter that lets you separate the parenchyma from the liver. And that's why, and also the capsule of the kidney can do that. Whereas as you can see, they're very close to each other. These two, without the fat would be the fibrils. So this is what I call the three shades of gray. This is the, I'm sorry, the three shades of gray. The normal kidney is isoechoic, almost the same as liver and spleen, isoechoic kidney. You can see it in here, it's a normal. Hyperechoic, and hyper is bright. It's an easy way to remember. Anything that's hyper is bright. Anything that's hypo is dark on imaging. So for practical purposes, children are usually hyperechoic in earlier on, and then children after one year, they start moving in this direction. And so the three shades of ultrasound is isoechoic, hyperechoic, and hypoechoic. All your pathology is here. The only pathologies here are mostly cystic diseases. So this is the picture I was referring to earlier. You see the lower pole of the kidney, you can see we are a little bit off angle here. So the kidney literally sits on the liver. You can see they literally have the same density. So it's that fat that separates the two images to differentiate the organs. So isoechoic, very similar. Okay, hyperechoic, you can see that the kidney is brighter than the liver. Here, you can see the kidney is okay, but the liver is brighter. So the hyperechogenicity is due to the liver disease rather than the problem with the kidney. And now we are looking at the right kidney. And my question is, where is the liver? And the answer is a large isolated image without surroundings can be very misleading. So this is actually a transplant kidney, which is, sits in the lower quadrant, and you can at the same time, similar to that, it's the only time that you can see the bladder and the kidney on the same shot is in a pelvic kidney or on a transplant side. So this is a, a congenital pelvic kidney. Other than that, it's literally impossible to get the two of them on the same shot. 
So we can sometimes have two pediatric kidneys sitting next to each other in transplant, and that's with hydronephrosis. And now I'm showing you uh, the image of the right upper quadrant. I see the liver and I see this very, very hyperechoic image here. So my question is, where is the kidney? The answer is the kidney is not there. This is what the upper quadrant looks like post-nephrectomy. That's called typical empty renal fossa. And that brightness is to the fat in that area. So this is commonly used sometimes in exams, sometimes in all kinds of stuff. Every time the sound goes around the round edge, it shoots down. It's called edging artifact. The edging artifact is seen sometimes around the prostate. You sometimes see it on the edge of the bladder. And you also typically see it around the tip of the testicle or between the testicle and the epididymis. And that means that all of a sudden the sound finds its way down passing a, an object. The, this is what I made up on my own. I call it a railroad sign. So a lot of times you have patients who have stents and all you look at it, you're looking for a stent. What does a stent look like? A stent looks like this. It looks like a railroad. And look at it here again. This is again very useful uh, when you're doing sonography during pregnancy. And I do a lot of that stuff during pregnancy. I do sonography. I do the uroscopy completely with that. And that itself is the whole lecture, the management of hydronephrosis during pregnancy. What are the readings? What does hydro mean? What, what, how much hydro is hydro? It's just itself is a good 40 minutes of talk. So sometimes the vessels can mimic uh, stone. Sometimes when you have an obstruction, not sometimes, almost always rather, you can see a dilated ureter. In a typically normal kidney, you are not supposed to see the ureter. You're not supposed to see ureter. This is what you obviously know as hydronephrosis, and you know what it's called, and you know the degrees of it, grade one, grade two, so we will not go there. And do not mistake uh, an extra renal pelvis for hydronephrosis. You can see there's nothing here. There's no blunting, nothing. It's just that. So this is really not hydronephrosis. And occasionally, these parapelvic cysts may confuse you for hydronephrosis. So you got to keep this in the back of your mind. And <clears throat> the ureter sometimes can even be followed if it's obstructed all the way down here. And you can see two dilated ureter posterior to the bladder. Again, it all depends on how much blockage or <clears throat> problem you have. So let me quickly go over a few of classic images that we see. One is this, persistent fetal lobulation. Next one. Columns of Bertan sometimes look like that. Then, if you have a horseshoe kidney, you have this structure across the vertebrae, and that echo is from the vertebrae. And you can clearly see that when you put the Doppler on it, there's flow in the isthmus of the kidney because that's a live tissue with vessels. So that's the typical appearance of horseshoe kidneys. Sometimes the kidney moves across very rarely. That's an example of a cross-fuse ectopia from left to right. And Solitary kidneys are typically larger and longer. In this case, you can see it's as big as 15 centimeters. This is a pretty big kidney. And there are a few circumstances that with age, the kidneys get smaller, larger BMIs are associated with larger kidneys. 
So if you have somebody who's 300 pounds, expect to see larger kidneys. <clears throat> Pay attention to the details. Here, you see the little dark line here in the center of the kidney. And if you pay a little bit more attention and play around with your probe, you see two little dots. So this is obviously a duplicated system that creates two ureters. You can see, you can see, I created this image in my own office with my own machine. Sometimes these are not really hard to reproduce. Resistive index is of value, it is, Typically 0.7 for most vessels, 92% sensitive, 88% specific in its finding, and it is accurate with high grade obstruction. That means that your RI goes up in an acute obstruction, not partial. And how do you assess that? Peak systolic minus end diastolic over peak systolic. That's the formula that you get resistive index. Where do you put your probe to get resistive index? At the juxta medullary junction of the kidney, not at the high level. <clears throat> so renal stones, you, you guys know plenty about this. You know, I, I didn't put the twinkle artifacts and stuff in here. You have seen plenty of those. You get the echo behind it. Sometimes the vessel can do that. So this is what's important though. These are the things can mimic stone, gas, renal artery calcification, sloughed papilla, sometimes transitional cell with the stuff, you know, encrusted material in there. And you have to realize that the twinkle artifact is only 80% sensitive. Not all stones produce that. Nephrocalcinosis, like renal tubular acidosis, you get that diffuse appearance, you know, all this uh, blotchy, whited stuff in the kidney. You can, um, you can use a Doppler to differentiate. Sometimes you look at a big renal vein and you think it's ureter. So turn on the Doppler, it tells you the difference between the two. I made that mistake a long, long time ago myself before I actually had the Doppler on my old machines. Ureteral jets, again, that's, that's a whole big session on itself, but it's a very good way of ruling out obstruction. And so let's talk about pathology a little bit. As I said, the pathology is in the brightness, hyper or bright. And most of your pathologies are here. What are the diffuse pathologies? Medical renal disease, nephrocalcinosis, end-stage, atrophic kidneys, HIV nephropathy, and polycystic kidneys. The segmental hyperechoic lesions, the classic one is AML, and that's diagnostic. Fatty lesion, vascular lesions, occasionally RCC, air calcification, and then uh, sometimes you get more echo at the level of the corticomedullary junction. So I believe it's a little overdue for me to talk about Bosniaks. We all see and hear the Bosniaks. Again, Bosniak lesions, cysts are dark, okay? So simple lesion, you know, it's a hairline wall, septated lesion, you can use a you can use the Doppler to see if there's flow. And if you hear the expression, a hyperdense cyst, it means a hemorrhagic cyst. And that sometimes you can differentiate that on the CT, but there's usually no flow inside that. Then the 2F, you know, it means follow-up. Complex means the thickening of the wall calcification and on and the, this is a tumor. You don't need this again, the same classification. 
simple cyst, and here again, simple cyst, nothing in it, no echo. Here is uh, another example of a simple cyst. Here you can see that there's a little bit of a septation. So this is considered, uh, you want to put a Doppler here to see if there's flow there. That's a two, and you start getting into complex cysts with a little thickening in the wall. You start looking at Bosniac three, and then you get to a point that you start really looking at thickening and all of that looking for tumor. Now, so if I show you this picture, and you're looking at the upper pole of the kidney, and you say, yeah, that's nice. That looks like a little uh, cystic lesion in here, but don't take everything for granted. Look at the picture with the clinical information mixed. Why? Because this is nothing but a calyx. It's an upper pole calyceal infundibulum with the hydrocalyx that produced that image. So you can be fooled sometimes with images. So clinical information is uh, probably relevant in times like this. Infarct. It's obvious you don't get flow to part of the kidney. So for example, you can see that this patient infarcted here. You can see that. But when you look at this ultrasound, it's a little bit See, there's a little bit difference here, here. But if you put the Doppler, it's silent, which correlates to this area. So it's a good way of assessing that. You know, complete renal infarction. And HIV typically gives you this appearance of uh, dense. It can be like that, or it can be like that. So they are diffuse, hyperechoic, and they are enlarged kidneys. You do lithotripsy and the patient develops a hematoma. That's what it looks like. Again, this is a picture I've produced in the office. You can see, pushes the kidney and that's all the blood around it. Sometimes after a biopsy, patients can see maturia, you develop a fistula. This is very much like a twinkle artifact. You can see, that's the AVM. You get a mosaic pattern of arteriovenous mixture. It's very simple to produce this, especially if you're looking at that. This is something I want to spend about a minute on because this has clinical value. If you have renal vein thrombosis, there's a sudden anuria in a solitary kidney. Or if you have a transplant kidney, all of a sudden the patient stops making urine. You do an ultrasound, it's a perfect normal appearance of a kidney. When you look at it with Doppler, there's no venous flow. But when you look at the arterial flow, this is the venous thrombosis. There's nothing wrong with the artery. So you do get your systole. But this is the classic finding that you all like you to remember, sorry. What you see on a Doppler is reversal of arterial flow in diastole. You can see that? It backs it down and comes above the line. So this is reversal of the flow in diastole is classic and pedagogic for, for the diagnosis of the renal vein thrombosis. So some people now talk about multi-parametric ultrasounds. Why? Because you get a grayscale, you get Doppler, you get color Doppler, you get spectral Doppler, you do elastography, and you can even do contrast. So there's a lot you can learn from doing an ultrasound using this variety of techniques, depending, again, on what your needs are and what you're doing. For example, again, some more lesions, you can look at this. This is a typical of a mass tumor, probably renal carcinoma, hyperechoic lesion. This is diagnostic. If you have a lesion like that, bright white, hyperechoic, that's angiomyolipoma. You really don't need CT scan to confirm this. Again, look at this. You see it here on the sagittal, you see it here on the transverse. So this is diagnostic of uh, angiomyolipoma. When you have lymphoma, 
you get diffuse infiltration of the kidney. You have multifocal hypoechoic masses, solitary. So, and sometimes, you know, it can be confusing. And there are people who have taken kidneys out for what it looked like a massive renal cell carcinoma, which turned out to be lymphoma. So if you have diffuse infiltrating mass, that's the key word. Think of processes like lymphoma. Here's an example. It's a global infiltration of the kidney. You'll be surprised that the kidney goes back to normal after treatment. So um, when you do your ultrasound, you have to be, depending on what you want, you want to do a quick ultrasound and see somebody residually, you want to know if the patient has hydronephrosis, etc. But if you want to really do it, you have to do it correctly. You have to get transfers and sagittal images of the kidneys, and you need to get images the upper pole and the lower pole and do some measurements. That's theoretically a complete report. And what's, what's coming next? You actually, this is a nice little neat, I don't have it anymore, so the, the GE brought it for me, I use it for a while. This is what you call pocket ultrasound. So what's a pocket ultrasound? You can literally, as you can see, it sits in your pocket, and one day I actually, I use this, they, they were, I was in the office, they called me to go to the OR to do an emergency case. And I put it in there, put one of those uh, clean plastic covers over it and just put it inside the kidney. And this would retain a few of the images for you. You can actually take it and download it and print the images. So I believe in a way, the same way we walk around with stethoscopes, I don't think many urologists walk, walking around with stethoscope, but a lot of people do. This may become part of the daily things you'll be doing because you need to look at something quickly. You know, a lot of times you by the patient bedside, you're not 100% the patient's retention or not, you know, get a machine, get an ultrasound, put a catheter in someone or bring the, that, you know, the scanner and those scanners, depending who uses them, can give you some false information. So, but again, this is something to think and look around. I think they're still a little bit expensive. I don't know how realistic it is for everybody to walk around with these. You don't want to walk out of a room leaving this information on the computer. This is against HIPAA. It is not, you know, Patients don't like <clears throat> to walk in and see somebody else's name on the screen and written under it, for example, kidney tumor. So what I like to emphasize here is that delete the image. Don't leave this on the screen and take the patient's name off because you won't like somebody to walk into the room and you know, see your name on a screen with some pathology written under that. Again, this is, is somebody who was looking around in our office as, a, as sort of like looking for quality control many years ago, and he's the one who actually brought it up. He said, that's not right. You can't have somebody's image on the screen with the name on it and have somebody else come in the room. So again, this is one of the things that you need uh, to use for your habit. Now, <clears throat> I don't know how much of this you can see, but I'd like to show you again. The image of the kidney, I'm gonna use this to represent a pro, just one more time. The kidney doesn't sit like this. The kidney has this rotation, it has that kind of a rotation, and the medial. So if you look at a kidney like this, you're gonna miss this part. 
If your probe is looking at this part of the kidney, you're gonna miss the upper part. So you need to go to the kidney. The kidney will not come to you. And when you're looking at a transverse image, that's how you're looking. So when you are, your probe is looking at the kidney like this, this is how you get the upper pole. This is how you get the mid and lower pole, or you can move it down to get the similar images. Again, you need to learn to move your wrist. It's not that much moving the hand around, but fine, you know, as the French uh, chef used to say, it's all in the wrists. So, you know, you do enough of it, you're gonna like it. It becomes an essential part. Get a good machine. For the younger guys who are leaving, moving into practice, for those of you who are residents, don't buy a cheap machine because it's cheaper. Buy a machine that is good. Buy a machine because it will last you longer. Buy a machine that has Doppler on it. You can't have a good ultrasound machine that will not be able to produce Doppler images for you. So spend a little bit more money, buy a good machine. And if you go into a system that's possible, try to have one machine in two or three of your rooms if you have that. There are a lot of these machines that move around. You don't need to have a fancy machine. Like for example, we have about, I think six machines in our office. I have my fusion um, machine in one room where we do all of the biopsies. Then I have three, uh, the rest of my machines have Doppler. So I can do Doppler flow, uh, twinkle artifact, I can do residual. So, but you need one top-notch machine when you want to do your penile ultrasound, you want to do, you know, vascular flow injection, you want to get a good machine that will let you do fusion. There are, uh, the fusion machines unfortunately are quite expensive, but it's doable. And finally, a few basic machines that will allow you to do your regular ultrasound, abdominal ultrasound, scrotal ultrasound, it is not that hard. You just need to build up the confidence. You need to build up enough. You have to spend time. And again, this is, you guys may have a little bit of time on your hand. So talk to your friends, find a nice clean room, get a nice clean ultrasound, practice on each other. Look at your wrist, put the probe on your neck, Put the probe you know, in your upper quadrant, right side, left side. Every one of the technicians, all of the reps who come to your offices or at the meetings who sell you ultrasound machine, if you notice, they immediately pull up their shirt and they take the probe and they start imaging the kidneys. They're not even radiologists. They're not even technicians, but they learn by practice. So that's what you need to do. You can't become good in finding the left kidney, which is the hardest of all organs to find, by just occasionally practicing it. You've got to constantly practice it. Practice on a thin person, then you go to the, somebody with a medium size, and then of course it's a lot harder to look you know, for kidney on the left side, especially if somebody has had a big lunch and there's a lot of air and the colon is over it. So there are restrictions and you know, limitations, but by repeated exam, you become good at it. Use your hand gently and softly. It's all in the angulation of your wrists to move that probe softly up and down, right and left, to create that harmonious or lesion that you want to look at. So I think I'll leave it at that. So if you have any questions, if not, I, they asked me to give you some idea about like residents, guidelines, what do I think.
Do I have a few slides after that? So do you want me to go on to that and then ask the questions? Or Mike, you tell me how you want me to proceed. Um, yeah, if, if you have a couple more slides, um, I think you can hit those. And then um, there's a couple okay. questions I can ask. So the, the real question is, so I, I did tell you, for those of you who were here a little bit earlier, a little bit about myself. I, I finished my training around 1985. So I've been in academic practice here. Um, so, so I called it, you know, I just made these slides yesterday. But I also, I realized that the color of background of my slides are like the color of the ultrasound machine. It was not intentional. I just realized that uh, last night that it was that. So, uh, so I've been in the academic practice for about 35 years, and we've been doing a lot of that. I know it was earlier on talking to Dr. Blavis. I think he's been at it a little bit longer than I have. So I have trained, I don't know how many residents and fellows and God knows how many students and rotators and all. So there are certain things you learn by going through all of that. But the most important thing, that was, the best thing that I can hand to you is this. Not too many people hear this expression, but it's an old expression that says, make your hat your judge. Why? Because your hat <clears throat> sits on your head. So in a way, it means that you put your head in front of you and let that judge you. That's your best judge. Your brain knows you better than anybody, and your brain is honest with you. Anybody else who gives you an advice may have other you know, things in the background of the decision-making that may not about you, or always because you know who you are, you know what you know, you know what you can do. So these are see, these are very different times. You know, I've, I've gone through a lot of these things. We went through things like the Ebola, the HIV crisis, the 9/11, and now this. Everything changes. What do we do? We start reevaluating yourself. So people say, so, "Okay, where am I in my life?" You have to ask, "Do I really know what I want to do?" A lot of you may be second, third, fourth year resident. And you say, yes, I want to do this. I want to do minimum basic. I want to do peds. I want to do oncology. I want to do pelvic floor. But do you really know what you want to be? Do you really, is that really what you want? And if you really assess yourself, are you on the right path? Is this really the right path for you? Do you have the right personality for that kind of practice? And this is the most important question that you should ask yourself. And that's when your hat is your judge. Are you ready? You know it better than anybody else if you're ready for what you want to do. So, look at it. I mean, I, I'm not really a, a computer whiz at all. I'm not anything. But when I look at my computer desk, I have this thing called Instant Message, WhatsApp, FaceTime, WebEx. I did two WebEx yesterday for the hospital. I have Zoom, Skype. So, these virtual media will gradually replace your waiting room. So what you need to know is you have to learn to adjust to that. Practice of medicine, encounters, communication, they're all evolving. Nobody wants to drive for two and a half hours and come and sit in your waiting room for two hours so that you can see him for five minutes. People are rethinking all of these things. And you may as well start thinking it over and see how you want to evolve or where you want to be. So the same way you're reevaluating your practice. Believe me, a lot of people are doing that because a lot of these patients are not going to be back after what we have seen now. So the patients are also reevaluating their options. They're not going to come in for a 10-second visit to tell them that, listen, yeah, your PSA is normal. Or can you tell me on the phone? 
So, but this is more important about you. Are you really ready? Are you, you have to ask yourself what you're good at. Are you really good at what you want to do? Or you know what you're not good at, then you should improve on it, okay? You don't have to rely on others to do what you have to do. That means, no, I'm not ready. I have to learn more about this. And this last line, believe me, I've seen it over the years in many, many practicing urologists. The worst enemy of your practice is your insecurity about yourself and your abilities and disabilities. If you're going to do something that you don't feel comfortable doing, that shows somewhere along the line, it will come out. So my answer to you is very simple. The two words that every employee fears are these, being dispensable and replaceable, okay? The days of the two one-man, two-man practices are gone. For practical purposes for you younger guys, all of you will be working for a large firm, the healthcare system or something. So whatever you like, whatever you do, become good at it. Become the best at it. Whatever it takes. You guys are all very young. You finish a lot earlier than my generation did their training. Take a year, two or three years even, do a fellowship. Don't tell me the sentence that my residents have been telling me for years. Oh, I have to go make money. I have some debts and I have some loans. You'll be able to pay them very quickly. Find a good mentor. Go find the best person in your field, whoever is the best. Learn from them. This is my big advice to you here. Don't rely on support in your surroundings. You should be good enough and let other people come and build things around you. That's your biggest guarantee of success. You don't rely on them. Let them rely on you. And then, as I said earlier on, a lot of times good things happen. You are fortunate. Something comes your way. But that's not enough. You have to work at the opportunities. You have to work at it. You have to take advantage of it and use it to your benefit and to the benefit of the others. And then they go all the way to the other part of it. Somewhere along the line, <clears throat> I, I took this um, from Birgit Nelson, famous opera singer, a uh, brilliant singer. She said, I have to know when it's time to stop before the audience does. So when the fear of performing is bigger than the joy of singing, then it's the time to stop. So it's the same thing for those of you who work or practice or you do. If you're doing something that you're so afraid to do that you don't even know what you're doing, then you know, we should stop or shouldn't be doing it. So with those words, I'd like to stop and leave maybe a minute or so for some questions. I thank you for the opportunity. And again, congratulations for the great work you guys are all doing. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, I was supposed to do this at some point. We will do it later. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Eschi. Um, that was an excellent talk. I think we all learned a lot there. Um, Dr. Blavis asked if you have any tips on getting better definition of renal architecture in obese patients. Well, Jerry, as you said, <clears throat> uh, the obesity is probably the, the enemy of ultrasound. In patients who have large body habitus, you're usually more inclined to move laterally. That means put the patients on their side and instead of like uh, axillary or clavicular line, 
work more from the lateral side and you definitely find a better image that way because you have less fat in the back than in the front and on the other hand the bowel is not in front of you so it's not a good time at the 1 30 in the afternoon to try to look for a, a left kidney in a big person with all the abdominal gas and everything in there so you want to go behind the bowel so i would try to approach it more posteriorly all right. And then um, a couple people asked about any tips for um, using ultrasound in like a PCNL. Um, have you, I don't know if you've done Absolutely. That. You know, first of all, uh, I, I have been doing a percutaneous nephrostomy all along through the years with the, using the, you know, the fluoroscopy. I do have an ultrasound. We bring the ultrasound in the room. And a lot of times, especially when I'm the uh, uh, do like percutaneous nephrostomy and transplant kidneys and all of that. Or when you have hydronephrotic kidneys without any contrast, that's hard to find the kidney. Ultrasound is always useful. And more than anything, again, in pregnancy, I do all the ureteroscopies during pregnancy with ultrasound guidance. I don't even have the C-arm in the room anymore. Absolutely, it's not that hard. And actually, if you're looking at the lower quadrant like transplant kidney, those are the easiest thing to find. Posteriorly, before you do your percutaneous approach, yes, take the ultrasound before you uh, cover the patient, do a good imaging of the kidney, look at your boundaries, you can put some marks on the patient before you paint, uh, and then you actually have some landmarks, and you can use the needle to guide you towards the pelvis or the calyces. It's quite doable, yes. Excellent. Um, so I think that's um, everything for now. Thank you again. And I just want to um, plug the AUA ultrasound course for residents in the area um, that, that you teach and, and let everybody know that usually comes around, I think, sometime in September. So um, everybody should keep an eye out for that.